stepping back and asking, well, can I go off menu? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to Tetris myself into shape to fit into whatever box somebody else created, but asking and raising your hand and asking, like, I actually want to go off menu. I want to try something else. I would like something else. And if it doesn't exist, ask for it or create it yourself. So there's so much, the best things in life are not on the menu. There is so much value in stepping back and saying like, what do I actually want from life? And then going after that versus just sticking to whatever options happen to be on the menu in front of you. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? What got you there? With Sean Who is ready to wake up and stop sleepwalking through life? Hey guys, it's Sean, and if you are, then you are going to love today's podcast with rocket scientist turned award-winning professor and best-selling author, Ozan Varol. Now, you might remember that name because he was originally on episode 205 for his book, How to Think Like a Rocket Scientist, but today, Ozan is back on the podcast to talk about his new book, Awaken Your Genius, Escape Conformity, Ignite Creativity, and Become Extraordinary. He really dives into practical ways that we can start living a more authentic life life, how to unlock the creativity we all have, and how we can become the artists of our own life. Hey guys, it's Sean, and for the last 15 years, I've been working at the intersection of elite performance, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Now, as a success coach, former professional athlete, entrepreneur, and podcast host, my mission has been helping people discover their untapped potential and live their best life. Now, after being an advisor to Inc.'s fastest growing companies, interviewing billionaire business titans, and personally coaching CEOs and executives, I've put together the most impactful tools and exercise into my online personal growth course called You Unleashed. Now, if you've been looking to get access to a course that's going to help you expand your potential to help you overcome your obstacles, cultivate your passion, and create your purpose, then head to What Got You There dot com forward slash you dash unleashed that's what got you there dot com forward slash you dash unleashed or click the link below to check out my online personal growth course called you unleashed ozan sabubona hey sean great to see you thanks for having me back on the show yeah it's great to see you your second time on the show originally on episode 205 with your first book how to think like a rocket scientist but i would love for you to give listeners just a little perspective behind the sawubona the zulu greeting i i said uh, when you first came on the show what does that mean and why is it important to you yeah it literally means i see you but it goes beyond the simple act of sight. It really means I see your humanity. I see your personality. I see that like you're a human being who's a memory to somebody. Uh, you're not just a transaction. You're not just someone standing between me and my, you know, caramel macchiato at Starbucks. You're not a you're not a business card. You're not your title. You're not who you voted for in the last election. It means I see you as a person and I recognize you. And and I love that because. It's so rare in this day and age. <laughs> you know, we often see past people. And uh, and so when I first read about that saying and actually what it meant, it it really touched me because it's just it, it it really is very rare in this day and age where we're just sort of rushing through life. And uh, even with our friends, we're not really taking 
the time for that deep connection. And so there's a section in the book where I, I include that phrase. And I, I love that you opened the interview with that. Yeah, I, I love that. I what, what I try to do it, and I, I'm believe me, I, I'm just like everyone else. And we're rushing through our day. But it's like, can you find those little moments with the person in front of you, whether it be at the grocery line or, or when you're with one of your kids, where you're, you're just truly seeing them. And, and I love the, the, the part about that is they're not a title. It's like they exist, yeah. they matter. Um, so, so I appreciate you both putting that in the book and then adding some light there. Uh, another thing I, I want to get your take on is on your computer, you have a post-it note, or it's actually on your mm-hmm. desk. What is the post-it note and what is the significance of this? The post-it note says, <laughs> it's an equation, bear with me, <laughs> I will explain it. The post-it note says 0.8 times 0.2 equals 0.16. Now we're not going to be talking about math in this in this conversation, but let me let me explain what it means. So I have really vivid dreams, and I do a lot of dream journaling. So one of the first things I do when I wake up is to journal about the dreams I had the night before. And a couple of years ago, I had this dream about this equation, which is the one I just shared with you: 0.8 times 0.2 equals 0.16. I don't normally dream about math. And I just remember being in the dream and being really confused. I was an astrophysics major. uh, So the middle school math checks out. The equation is right. But in the dream, I was really confused because I was looking at this equation through the perspective of a mathematical beginner. And I was really confused that the product of two numbers could be less than each number. So you've got 0.8, 0.2 equals 0.16. 0.16 is less than both 0.2 and 0.8. Um, so I journal about the dream and the meaning of it wasn't immediately clear to me. And then a couple of days later, it hit me, which is that when we operate at a fraction of our capacity, so when we're operating at a 0.2, for example, instead of one, the output becomes a fraction of what we actually put in. Um, And I was reflecting on that and what it means for attention in general. So most of us um, rush through our day as we just discussed. We're moving from one email to the next, one notification to the next. Many people listening to this conversation are probably doing something else in the background. Our attention is constantly fragmented. And when that happens, what our output suffers, what we put in, so if you're operating at a 0.2, the output is going to be a fraction of what you're actually actually capable of. And so I was reflecting on that dream and that the post-it on my desk is a reminder of the power of full attention. Mm-hmm. So giving full attention to whatever it is that you're working on. Most people, you know, when they meet like a really charismatic, charismatic leader, they'll say something like, you know, they made me feel like I was the most important person in the room. Imagine giving that type of attention to everything you do. So not just deep work in Cal Newport's memorable phrase, but also deep rest, deep reading, deep watching, deep love, deep hugs, deep connection, deep everything. Because when you lean in and you're you're at a 1.0, the output is going to be so much better versus the fragmented attention that most of us operate by. You just use the phrase lean in. When when did you really start to lean in? And did this start as kind of just an intentional act and then was kind of difficult in the beginning like most habits are? And then the more you did it, the stronger it became and your ability to lean in just kind of grew stronger over time? For sure. And I was one of the people who suffered from fragmented attention. I would get up in the morning, you know, and reach for my smartphone right away and like check Instagram, check Facebook, 
check the news, check my favorite sports sites. And my attention immediately in the morning would be fragmented in a million different directions. Mm. It was the digital equivalent of like gorging on a bucket of M&Ms for mm. breakfast every morning, right? And so we think about food being toxic, but information can also be toxic. Fragmented attention can also be toxic. So I noticed that my creativity suffered greatly because I was intaking not only junk information, but also just polluting my mind with stuff I didn't need to know about first thing in the morning, which is like the most creative time of my day. And so the change began by me noticing that there was a problem that was being caused by fragmented attention and and uh, intake of toxic sources of information. And then, as you said, I began to lean in, which is to say, okay, I'm going to be intentional about not looking at my smartphone in the morning, not checking email in the morning. That was another source for me. But significant source of distraction was I would check my email to start my workday. And so I would be tackling other people's problems and other people's to-dos versus using like the first two hours of my day, which is the most creative and everybody's different. But for me, that's the most creative time period. Doing was actually going to move the needle on what I care most about, which is my writing and speaking. And so it was an intentional act of leaning in and saying, look, I'm going to stop doing what I was doing before, start the day with my with creativity. And initially, I framed it as an experiment, right? So let me just not check email before noon for two weeks and see what happens. Because often, really drastic changes can be scary because you think, you know, I've been operating this way for such a long time that if I make a change, something, some like disastrous consequence might result. And, you know, no one died because I didn't check my email before noon every day. And in fact, nothing bad happened at all. Um, and a lot of great things happened. I, my creative output increased significantly. And so at the end of that two-week experiment, I said, look, this was amazing. So I'm going to make this permanent change. And so I rarely ever check my email or my smartphone before noon every day. And whenever I violate that rule, it's always to my detriment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the underlying themes here is really being intentional about the, the timing and the ways to put yourself into into a, a heightened state so you can have that that deeper presence there. I, I love that. I, I want to dive into the, the framing around the experiment. Now, is this something you do every single time you're about to take on, let's just call it like a new challenge a, as a way to, to make it not seem so scary? It's just, hey, I'm going to try this experiment. Is that the, the reasoning behind it? Yeah. Whenever I'm about to make a what seems to me like a major change. If it's a minor change, then I'll just do it. But if it's a if it's a major change to the way that I've been operating, yes, then I will frame it as an experiment. An experiment, for me at least, the framing reduces the stakes involved, right? Mm. So this is not a permanent change. I'm just trying this out to see what happens. Um, and I always have an end date for the experiment. So like I will say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna not gonna check email for two weeks, and then I'll put that date on my calendar. Uh, it's important for the experiment to have an end date because it's easier to, to, for some things especially, to start things than to end things. And so having an end date on your calendar where you'll look back and evaluate uh, what happened is important. And then I'll also think about like what failure would look like and what success would look like. You know, in the case of my email experiment, the success would be, well, my creativity increases, uh, my my ability to pay attention for longer periods of time increases. And then failure would be like some disastrous thing happened before because I didn't check my check my email, which again wasn't the case. And so, looking back on it, 
yeah, so starting out, put an end date on your calendar, think about what success and failure looks like, and then have those criteria on, on hand when you evaluate what happens in two weeks. Um, and so in the case of this experiment, that's now a permanent change in my life because of that. Yeah. What I really appreciate about this is, is yes, you, you make it a little bit less scary. But then the other thing you said is you've been thinking about like potential failures and way this will work out. So it gets your brain thinking about multiple pathways and then just obstacles you might you might occur or incur. So I really appreciate that. Ozan, you and I, I feel like are, are really driven a lot by the same thing. Like one of, one of my like oxygen sources in life is is trying to catalyze and ignite people to to live a, a deeper, richer, more fulfilling life, right? That's, that's why I have this podcast. We have people on like yourself. And I know with your new book, Awaken Your Genius, that's, that's a major thing that you want to do as well. And, and I want to know how you get people to, to realize they're sleepwalking through life. How, how does that initial spark happen where they say, you know what, <laughs> there's got to be more to this than the way I'm going. How, how does that initial wake up happen? It happens usually because of something external. So either um, an external event happens that forces them to come to that realization. So like they might lose their job, for example, and realize that the job that they were so afraid of losing was actually not the right path for them. Hmm. Or a mentor will come along. And this, by the way, doesn't have to be like a mentor mentor. It might be a best friend, a partner, significant other, whatever it might be, and asks them a question that jolts them awake. Mm. Uh, it might happen because of therapy too. Uh, you know, you realize that the path you were walking on isn't the right one for you. It might happen because of uh, journaling. So that's one of my practices, like along with dream journaling, I just journal in general in the morning where I'm like really paying attention to what's keeping me up at night, the, the thought patterns, both posit positive and negative that keep coming up. Paying attention to those internal clues becomes really important. And I'll mention one more thing, which was probably one of the hardest things for me to do because I've lived my life uh, from the prefrontal cortex, like just totally operating from the mind space for a very long time. But paying attention to the signals that your body is sending you. Uh, I'll give you an example from my life. So I was a professor for 10 years and I absolutely loved teaching when I started out. Like I loved it. I loved being in front of the classroom. Um, and I thought I'd be a professor for the rest of my life. And I remember distinctly, this was back in maybe 2016. So I'd been a professor for about six, seven years. I had just gotten tenure. I remember again, walking in front of the class, getting behind the podium, taking out my notes to teach. And I had this sinking feeling in my body. Like my, my shoulders collapsed, my chest collapsed and the feeling felt like, ah, like not again. Mm -hmm. I'm about to teach this class for the hundredth time, the same material again. Um, in a previous life, 10 years before, I would have ignored that. I would have said, look, I've got a plan here. My plan is to, I just got tenure. I'm going to keep walking down this path. But my body sent a very powerful signal to me saying, you know what, this amazing career that you once loved might be coming to an end. Like you're getting bored, you've stopped learning and growing. And I, instead of ignoring that signal from my body, I actually leaned in and paid attention to it. And the process took several years, but I ended up eventually leaving my academic job to pursue what I do now full time, which is writing books and speaking. Ozan, one of, the, one of the questions I usually ask is, is around someone's mindset, like one of the more powerful or impactful mindsets that they've had. 
I want to dive into the mindset that, that you embody and I love it. It's a guiding force in my life. And that's the, we're the artists of our own lives. And I would love for you just to dive into, into this and unpack what that means being the artist of your own life. I love the word artist, first of all. So let me begin there. Uh, I tell the story in Awaken Your Genius about Gordon McKenzie, who um, was a longtime artist at Hallmark Cards. And he would walk into a kindergarten class and ask the room, uh, how many artists are there in the room? And everyone would raise their hand, like leap up from their uh, from their seats to say, I'm an artist. Uh, he would do the same in a second grade classroom. And about half the people would raise their hands. By the time he got to fifth grade and he asked the same question to the classroom, only one or two people would admit to like such deviant behavior. Um, and and so that 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 way of operating, that that way of being creative, um, we are all inherent artists. I firmly believe we're all of us are born creative. So when people come to me and say, I'm just not a creative person, I don't buy it. Everyone is creative. Uh, some people lose touch with their creativity because of forces outside of their control. Unfortunately, the education system does so much to cure us of curiosity, to hamper our creativity, um, to sort of tell us that answers have already been determined by people far smarter than you. And your only job is to just memorize them and spit them back out on a on a standardized test. So there is no room for or very little room for creativity. It's just a system of compliance. So we lose touch with the artist within us, but the artist is still there. The challenge, I think, as adults is to get back in touch with that artist. And one of the ways to realize this is you really get to make up your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a, it's a realization that in some ways I um, happened upon early on. I got, the first memory that popped up here was I, had, I was a freshman in college. And then I applied this mindset throughout my whole life, too, because it it worked well. I was a freshman in college, and I'm looking through the course catalog um, at, like, available majors to see what I should major in. And I remember thinking, like, none of these appeal to me. Like, Mm -hmm. none of them quite capture what I want to study. Uh, which and I wanted to study astronomy, physics, geology, so like the, the intersection of those three disciplines, and like there was no major that captured all of that. Uh, and and then this thought came up within me, and I was like, I wonder if I could make up my own major. Like I wonder if I could artist design my my college experience. Um, I remember going into the registrar's office, and I walked in there saying, like, look, I, I looked through the course catalog. None of these majors appeal to me. Is there a way for me to design my own major? And lo and behold, it turns out that there was this like really small unknown program that allows a limited number of freshmen every year to be freed from all degree requirements, except you needed like 120 credits to graduate, but you got to make up your own own study. Like I needed to apply and have recommendation letters and whatnot, but I was I was accepted. And that lesson really stuck with me of like, somebody hands you a menu and says, these are your options. Stepping back and asking, well, can I go off menu? Like I don't wanna, I don't wanna Tetris myself into shape to fit into whatever box somebody else created. But asking and raising your hand and asking, like, I actually want to go off menu. I want to try something else. I would like something else. And if it doesn't exist, ask for it or create it yourself. So there's so much the best things in life 
are not on the menu. There is so much value in stepping back and saying like, what do I actually want from life? And then going after that versus just sticking to whatever options happen to be on the menu in front of you. Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode. But before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast. And my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. What's the, the prohibitor to people actually stepping back and asking what they want? I think it's the lifetime of, well, two things. Number one. And this was really hard for me too. Not knowing what you want. Hmm. It's one of the hardest things in life to figure out what you actually want. Because we live our lives in so many ways. Going for or being told what we should want. And then going along with that. Hmm. Versus checking in with ourselves and asking, what do I actually want? Like, what do I really want? So if you're listening to this Sit with that question for a while, and if you're like most people, it's actually going to be really hard for you to answer that. Uh, but it's important for you to first ask that question and sit with that question and come back to it on a frequent basis. It's a really powerful one. It's one of the hardest questions in life to answer uh, because, again, we go through life doing the opposite of that, suppressing our wants and desires and um, and trying to contort ourselves into shape to fit other boxes that we've created. So it starts with that. And then once you've figured out what you want, then you can begin to ask yourself, all right, like, how do I create this? How do I make this happen? Um, and for me, just to go back to an example from my life. So I mentioned that moment in front of the classroom thinking like, okay, this life, academic life isn't for me anymore. Um, and it wasn't like, uh, a glitch, right? That signal kept repeating itself. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and I leaned in and I was like, all right, like there, we need to make a change here. And then I started experimenting. So then it becomes, all right, well, this isn't for me. I don't quite know what's going to happen next, but I'm curious mm -hmm. about various different things. So very different futures. So I tried a number of different things. I was at the time very interested in productivity. And so I started a productivity coaching business for lawyers, uh, hated it. Like it, 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 I had some clients, but it was like really hard to get clients because lawyers are so busy and, and I just didn't love being doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, I remember I launched an online course to help law. I was a law professor to help law students, um, do better in law school also did not work well. Like it just failed. It wasn't great. And then there was this other voice within me saying like, I actually want to write. I want to write about reimagining how things are working. I want to write about my own daily struggles. I want to write about what I'm thinking and I want to help others see their own genius more clearly. So I started a blog um, and initially it was really slow, but I was getting a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the audience eventually started to grow and it reached this inflection point where, you know, at the end of the first year, I had maybe a thousand email subscribers, but year two, I had 10,000. 
So the message really started to resonate with people. And so I leaned into that and, you know, the blog ended up eventually culminating in, in a book, Think Like a Rock a Scientist, where I was here to discuss that with you, Sean, a few years ago. Um, but yeah, so I got curious about what I wanted. I said, all right, like, I'm curious about these potential futures. I tried some of them. Many of them didn't work. And then I leaned into the ones, the intersection of what I was interested in and what there was an audience for. What was your self-talk like during, let's call them the failures? The, the coaching didn't work out, the course didn't work out. What's the self-talk like for Ozon during those times? It varies. I mean, some of the self-talk is like, ah, like, God, I failed, you know? <laughs> I suck at this, right? Like, what am I doing wrong? That, that voice exists um, for all of us, I think. And I think I find it disheartening when people pretend like failure doesn't suck. Like there's this whole celebration of failure culture in Silicon Valley. And I think it's unhealthy. Uh, it's unhealthy because whoever says they celebrate failure and they don't mind failing is probably lying to you. Yeah. Uh, I've failed more times than I care to remember in my life. And every single time it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think you can, I don't think you can like ignore the suck. Yeah. And I don't think you can be like, I'm just going to celebrate this failure. Like uh, human beings don't operate that way. I don't operate that way. So when I fail, there's a grief involved with it. There's a grieving process. And there is a self-talk of like, I can't believe I failed. Um, so you can't, you can't gloss over that. Uh, so I leaned in and I was like, well, I'm sad that I put in all this work into creating this online course that didn't find an audience. And then the second stage begins, which is the learning phase. So I look back on the failure and this really, for me, helps reduce the grief and the stigma associated with failure, which is to say failure is the best teacher if you know how to approach it properly. So I can look back on that online course, for example, and ask myself, okay, what can I learn from this? What skills did I pick up here that I can that I can apply to my next project? And so I learned invaluable skills in putting that online course together. Like I knew nothing about copywriting, for example. And I became an excellent copywriter. Uh, that online course didn't find this audience, but I took the copywriting skills that I picked up from that course and I used them on a daily basis, for example, in like creating landing pages for my new book, Awaken Your Genius, or like designing other things um, that are that actually do have an audience. And I can bring those skills from what died uh, and use them as fertilizer for, for what's awakening. And that mindset of looking back and asking, okay, what can I learn from this? Also ends up reducing the um, the stigma associated with failure. Yeah. What I, what I really like about this is, is you actually confront like the brutal facts, right? Like, you know what? Yeah, this, this isn't working out, but, but you take the lessons in there. And then what's really important is you're forward facing, right? Like, all right, what's next? What are some experiments I can run? Let me get even more curious. And, and you take those lessons. I just think that's really helpful. Um, one of the things I would like to know though, is, is the title awaken your genius. What do you mean by genius? Yeah, I love that you asked that because I use genius in a very specific way and it's not the way that most of us use the term. So most of us use genius to mean the smartest, the most talented, the most intelligent. That's not how I'm using the term at all. Um, I'm using the term genius to mean, um, and this is a quote from Thelonious Monk. He says, a genius is the one most like himself. So genius is the one who's in touch with their own unique abilities, their own originality. Um, a genius, if you look at the Latin origin of the word, 
actually means the spirit attendant at birth in each and every person. Mm. So each of us is like Aladdin and our genie or our genius is bottled up inside of us waiting to be awakened. Hence, awaken your genius. I love that. Yeah, super deep there as opposed to what, what you might even think right on the surface, which I think is so important because it shows the depth that, that you've gone to thinking about this and even exploring in your own life. And that's that's what's really important here is, is your ability to actually add practical value here based on your own life experiences. And, and one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago was just kind of like that metamorphosis, that death. How hard was that death rebirth cycle like the butterfly for you personally? Really hard. Um, you know, the you mentioned the butterfly, like the transformation of the caterpillar into the butterfly is often glamorized in pop culture. Like the caterpillar goes into the chrysalis and this beautiful butterfly emerges. And that's true. But people gloss over the, the rotting process, which mm. is the caterpillar puts itself into the chrysalis mm. and it literally eats itself. Like that, it, it emits enzymes to dissolve and digest all of its tissues. Uh, and you can't skip the rotting process. You can't skip the death of what once was. And so for me, it was really hard to go into the chrysalis and leave behind this career that I once loved. Uh, and it was hard for a number of reasons, right? Number one, you think about, well, look, I went to, I spent three years going to law school. I, it was really hard to get a job in academia. Like it's a really cutthroat market. Um, I not only got the job, but I got tenure. And tenure means a guaranteed paycheck for life. Yeah. Like it's the most stable safety net that that you can imagine. I can't get fired. Um, and then there is the part about my ego, which is I had professor in front of my name for nearly 10 years. And giving that up is really, really humbling. Like when I thought about doing that, my ego was kicking and screaming and saying, dude, look, what are you doing? You know, are you out of your mind? You're about to leave behind everything you worked so hard to build. But not only that, you're going to be a beginner again. Mm. Like you're going to lose your credibility. You're not going to have a professor in front of your name. You're not going to have this established reputation that you worked so hard to build in your field. That's all going to be gone. Which one for you is um, harder? Getting, getting mm. rid of everything you worked so hard for or saying, you know what? I'm actually at the bottom of the mountain again. I'm a complete beginner and whatever it is I'm going towards next. I think it's the latter. Uh, and everyone's different. But for me, yeah. it was the I'm at the bottom of the mountain again. Huh. Like I'm a beginner again. I'm a nobody. I'm a blogger. You know, I like I'm starting a blog from scratch. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares that I was a law professor before. Um, I think that was the hardest part. Hmm. Now, there is a lot of freedom in that, too. Right. So I by beginning again, you're sort of saying, well, look, I, I'm writing on a blank slate. Like I'm just putting behind what I built in the past and I'm writing on a blank slate. And there's so much creative freedom in that, but it's also, it's also really humbling. Yeah. How much of the outside, the external, the friends, the family, all of that, how hard was that to get rid of? Like, oh, what are they going to say about me? Because um, mm -hmm. that's just something I, I hear a lot of people bring up is just the impact the people closest to us have on us um, and, and how they think about us and, and just that fear. What was that like for you? For sure. And I, I got conflicting messages. So my colleagues uh, thought I was making the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> I, I, uh, and, I and, and they were like, you know, they were very upfront about saying yeah. this to me, saying like, you are making a huge mistake. <laughs> no one leaves a tenure job. Yeah. No one does. You're out of your mind. 
But I'm also fortunate to have a very supportive partner in my wife, Kathy, and she was extremely supportive. She said, look, if if this is this is the direction that you want to head in and you think this is the right path. And like I had done my homework. It's not like I was leaping blindly into the unknown. This experimentation played into it. The fact that my last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, was successful played into it for sure. It was only after that book came out that I decided to to leave the safety net. Um, so I was getting conflicting conflicting messages. But to those who are listening, I think in, in many cases, by the way, um, when you do undergo a transformation like this, you end up being a beacon for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you end up becoming a lighthouse. You end up becoming an example of what can happen when you take the risk of dancing with uncertainty, when you take the risk and, and go through the grueling process of, of transformation. And if someone can't see the value in that, if someone can't wrap their head around your transformation, uh, in my view, it's their problem, not yours. Uh, if they're like, they're willing to, if they're unwilling to see why you're doing what you're doing, uh, if they're unwilling to lean in with curiosity, they're probably not your people. Um, and if you've got a lot of voices like that surrounding you saying, you know, you've got no business doing what you're doing, you should go back to coloring between the lines. I think those voices are really, really harmful. Uh, and listening to them can be really, really harmful because, you know, society can do its best to resist the transformation that is actually going to bring you into the next stage of your life and help you level up in life. And so it's also really important because of that reason to surround ourselves with partners and friends who are going to be supportive of our transformation and and getting in touch with our own genius. Yeah. Can you even talk about some more of those support beams? I'm just thinking about you said, you know what? I actually had some people around me who really supported me, who were really helpful. Also, I had kind of built some other safety nets in terms of the book yeah. done well. So I, I ran some experiments that worked out there. Um, and, and then you also alluded to earlier some of the practices you have. You journal daily. You're, you're, you're introspective. You're, you're thinking about things. What else was helpful for you? And I'm obviously visualizing this. It's like you're building these support yeah. beams, these structures to help you when you enter the unknown. Anything else that you, that you did previously that was helpful for setting you up for this? I think you... you you touched on the most important ones. The the other part that I did, and this played into my last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, was to look at my past. So once I decided that, okay, I'm going to walk down a different path, look at my past and think about what I could take from my past to use as fuel for my future. Like what are my first principles, my basic building blocks as a person, my Lego blocks, what are they and how can I take them to to do something else? And so some of my own Lego blocks were uh, here a couple of things. Number one, critical thinking. So I was a rocket scientist before I went to law school. So critical thinking was a big Lego block for me. Um, and rocket science ended up being the subject matter for my first book. Storytelling was another one. I've been a lifelong storyteller from, you know, the. I remember shortly after I learned how to read and write, I would sit down and and type stories on my grandfather's typewriter. And there's actually a typewriter over my shoulder over here as like a yeah. um, as a symbol, a testament to that, to the power of that, of storytelling. And and the, the, the theme of storytelling has been really strong across my life and has always been there. And so that was part of it. And then, you know, a decade spent in academia where I was teaching these 
big required first year classes filled with students who didn't want to be in the room. And I had to come up with ways to engage them, gave me tools to captivate audiences. And so combining those elements, I reimagined myself as a storyteller, a writer, which is why I tell so many stories in, in Awaken Your Genius, because we're storytelling creatures and people remember stories more than they remember like the principle, mm-hmm. um, or at least the dry principle that's divorced yep. from the story. And um, and then, you know, I, I also do a lot of keynote speaking. And so uh, the decade I spent in academia teaching to bored students who didn't want to be in the room certainly helps a lot with that as well. And so I looked at my past. I said, all right, here are my Lego blocks. Let's build something else with it. Yeah. It's incredible when we dive into our past, the amount of things we can uncover. It's almost like having an, an old bike that's covered in dust in the garage. It's like, I haven't ridden this thing in 10 years. It's like, but yeah, you can still hop on it and start riding. Same thing, like a lot of the skills that you developed over time, even if you haven't tapped into them recently, you can kind of dust that dust off pretty quickly there. One of the things that I want to explore, though, is around the first principles. So the first principles, the, the building blocks, can you go just a bit further into, into what you mean, just so I, this isn't too nuanced for someone thinking, what are what are my building blocks? What are my first principles? How do you think about people's first principles? Sure. Uh, and since I'm a storyteller, let me let me reply with a story <laughs> just to make this let me just just to make this more concrete. I recently um I recently saw Bruce Springsteen in concert. Um, it was my first Bruce concert. I was blown away. Here's this 73-year-old guy. He is jumping and dancing and like sliding across stage, pulling up all these moves that would put people in their 30s to shame. Uh, and he's been doing this since 1965. And he's had the kind of longevity that few musicians there have. And as, as I was watching him on stage, I thought about what makes him extraordinary. Uh, it's not his voice. Like, his voice isn't great, and he readily admits that. He can play the guitar, but he writes in his memoir, which is excellent, by the way. It's called Born to Run. He writes in his memoir that the world is filled with guitar players uh, that are just as good, and many of them much better than I am. And so instead of aiming at the same target as other musicians, trying to outsing or outplay them, he leaned on one of his first principles. He leaned on one of his useful idiosyncrasies, something about him that was unique, that made him different from other musicians. And that first principle, that useful idiosyncrasy, was his ability to write song lyrics. So he became a sensation for writing lyrics that capture the blue-collar spirits, that you know explain the gap between the American dream and the American reality, And the same guy who was initially dismissed by agents, bandmates, critics, just about everyone else, eventually became a rock and roll sensation. Because he leaned on one of his first principles, his ability to write songs, the thing that makes him different from other musicians. Now, this is really hard to do because if you're like most people, you were probably at some point in your life were shamed for your idiosyncrasies, Mm -hmm. what made you different from the herd. And so you learn to conceal them. You learn to suppress them. You know, you learn to leave that bike in the garage to collect dust because the moment you bring out that bike to ride it around, the moment you bring out your useful idiosyncrasy, someone said, no good. You're different from the herd now. Go back to coloring between the lines. Uh, but what made you weird or different before can make you extraordinary now. Uh, if you take the time to look across your life to some of the themes like if you asked your 
partner or your best friend, I include a number of questions in the book to discover your first principles, but but this is one of them. Uh, if you ask your partner or best friend, what would they say is your superpower? Like the thing that you could do better than the average person. Um, and then and then do self-reflection on a regular basis. This could take the form of journaling and and think about what those superpowers, those useful idiosyncrasies have been across your life. And then that will help you tease out those like that those uh, first principles, those building blocks, so that you could collect them and think about what you might be able to build with them. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that in story form. If you're interested in more Bruce Springsteen stuff, he did, it's like three hours long. It's on uh, HBO Max, I'm pretty sure, with Howard Stern, where Stern interviews him all about some of the songs he wrote the past. It, it was pretty interesting. But but one of the things I'm intrigued by is you hear so often about like follow your mm -hmm. passion. And I want to know why you have a different approach and what you think you should follow instead. Yeah, I think follow your passion is a well-meaning advice that just doesn't work. It doesn't work because passion for most people is just too difficult to figure out. Like when, when you tell someone, follow your passion, like how do you figure out what your passion is? It, it's too momentous a burden. So I think I find it much easier to think in terms of curiosity. So what are you curious about? Uh, and again, we're told to suppress our curiosities. We're told to go with what other people are telling us to, to read, to explore, to study. And so beginning to paying attention, beginning to pay attention to curiosities that are coming from within, even by the way, even those that seem silly, nonsensical, non-productive, those are extremely important. Uh, doing things, exploring something just for the sake of exploring it, not knowing where it's going to lead, not knowing that it's going to have an immediate practical outcome is really important because you just don't know where those breadcrumbs are going to lead. And if you if you want to know a precise destination from the outset before you even start walking, hmm. you'll never walk. Um, and so it, it's really important to pay attention to to those breadcrumbs of curiosity and, and follow where they might lead. Uh, there is a example I give in the book from Richard Feynman, the Nobel winning physicist. And, he was teaching at Cornell at the time, which is my alma mater too. He's sitting in the cafeteria and he's watching someone throw plates in the air. Uh, and the plate is wobbling as it, and it, the, the plate is also spinning. And he notices that the red Cornell medallion on the plate is going faster than the plate itself. So he becomes really curious and he's like, oh, I'm just like, for the fun of it, I'm going to sit down and um, work out the equations of these wobbles. And, uh, and a colleague notices what he's doing and he goes up to him and he says, Feynman, what are you doing? And Feynman explains to him that I'm just, you know, I'm working out the equations of these wobbles. And his colleague says, well, what's it for? Like, what's the use of it? And Feynman says, nothing, like no use whatsoever. I'm just curious about this and I'm gonna explore it. So he works out the equations of the wobbles and working out the equations of those wobbles gets him thinking about how Electron orbits also wobble in relativity. And that, that in turn leads him to pursue the work that he does to win the Nobel Prize. And looking back on that, uh, he says, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says, if I hadn't sat down to work out the equations of those wobbling plates just for the fun of it, there would have been no Nobel Prize. Hmm. But he didn't know at the time, right? When he sat down to do it for the fun of it, that where it might lead one day, uh, he couldn't see the precise destination. 
but he leaned into the curiosity and he followed those breadcrumbs and that in turn earned him the Nobel Prize. Hmm. This has me thinking about something else you wrote and it's just that we get too concerned with tracking metrics, right? Like too often yeah. we're always just looking at metrics and, and I'm wondering, you said following your curiosity, what else should we actually be measuring? Yeah, I think it's more important to be careful about uh, what we are measuring. And um, because the, the, re the reason I say that is some of the most important qualities in life don't come with units of measurement, hmm. so they get ignored, yeah. right? So you can't measure curiosity. You can't really measure play. You can't measure courage. You can't measure humility. You can't measure whether you're a better, better parent or a better colleague this year than you were last year. Like those just don't come with units of measurement. And as a result, in our outcome-focused culture, in our measurement-focused culture, a lot of those qualities, what people call soft skills, which are actually not soft at all, they're, they're some of the most important skills in life, or going back to Sawabona, right? Empathy can't be measured. Um, and so those qualities tend to get ignored, but they're so, so, so valuable. And so I think measuring things can be useful for sure. It's more important for people to be careful what they measure and not, you know, hand the uh, the steering wheel to units of measurement that might eventually lead them astray, but also lean into qualities like the ones I just mentioned that just don't come with units of measurement. Hmm. Are there certain things that you are measuring that you feel like have a, a residue effect on actually some of those really important foundational soft skills in life? Is there anything that we actually could measure? There are definitely things we could measure. Um, I used to measure things. Oh, the, let's, let's, one of the, let's talk about this. <laughs> for example, I used to I used to measure when I wrote Think Like a Rocket Scientist. I would have a word goal for the day. I would be like, okay, I'm not getting up from my seat until I wrote a thousand words. And a um, number of things happened. One, I hated myself when I did not hit that goal. And two, there were days when I would hit the goal, but what I would write was crap. Um, and I was incessantly focusing on this one metric I had set to myself in ways that were detrimental because they created this environment for me where my writing became stilted and forced. Hmm. Um, and so I took a different approach with the writing of this book. Um, I did not have a writing goal. I did not have a daily goal for myself. Um, and so, and by the way, I'm speaking as a person who had like self-discipline as one of his superpowers. Like I was, I was rarely the smartest or the most capable person in the room, but I could out-discipline just about anyone I know. Mm -hmm. uh, I could outwork just about anyone I know. And so that was part of my identity for a long time until that identity started to get in the way. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean like the way that I was doing things before was wrong. They may have been right for what I was doing at the time, but for the writing of this book and where I am in life, discipline was actually getting in the way. Discipline was forcing my writing to come out in a non-playful, non-creative way. And so with the writing of this book, I took a different approach. You know, there were days, even when I was under a deadline, where I didn't write at all because there was nothing. Uh, it's like, if you think about surfing, right? You show up with your surfboard uh, and there are no waves. Now you can force yourself to surf even when there are no waves. And I did that for a long time and I would hate myself.
Or I could be like, you know what? Words aren't coming today. I'm just going to jot down some thoughts. I'm going to walk away. Uh, and today is going to be my day for reflection. Today is my, my day for just daydreaming and letting my mind subconscious connect the dots and not for producing, not for producing this metric that I think is, is important. And, and on some days, by the way, when waves would be there, I could write for five hours, hmm. you know, and I could, I could write 2000, 3000 words that would more than make up for the days where I didn't write, but leaning into that, those natural rhythms of my body, instead of forcing myself to just sit down and just, you know, nose to the grindstone, white knuckle it, those days were over for me. Um, and, and I think because of that, this book is a lot more playful, a lot more creative, um, and a lot more of me than anything else I've written in the past. Was that a lot harder, those first few days where, hey, nothing's coming today, the waves aren't here to walk away? I I'm just wondering how you navigate that when, when, when oh, something's yeah. new. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was really hard because it was like, oh, my God, I am I am a total failure, right? I'm, I'm now lazy. I like the voice <laughs> in my head that associated with discipline is like, what are you doing? You're going to blow your deadline, uh, which, you know wasn't true. I actually turned in the book on time. I, by the way, my last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, I turned in two months before schedule, like before the deadline itself, which my editor was like, this might be a first in publishing history. Authors are notorious for blowing their deadlines. Like no one turns in a book two months ahead of schedule. And so it was an internal conversation with those parts too, which is going to sound really woo-woo. Uh, but if you're interested in, we're all made up of these parts. And so there's a um, system called internal family systems. Uh, highly, highly recommended. It's a really useful way of thinking through the different parts of you. And, and so the part of me that was associated with discipline would have that self-talk on days that I wouldn't write saying like, you're a total failure. You are going to blow the deadline. You are not going to turn this thing on time. Uh, and having a conversation, again, as ridiculous as this sounds, Having an internal conversation with that part and saying like, thank you, discipline, for bringing this to my attention. I really appreciate it, but I got it. Like, I, I, I am so thankful to you for all the service you perform these days. Like, here's a gold star. But right now, what's best served for me is if you can take the role that you played in the past and do something else with it. Mm -hmm. And so for that, the something else might be, I want you to become really disciplined about making sure that I have time to rest. Or I want you to become really disciplined about making sure that I have time to daydream because daydreaming is where I get my best ideas. Um, and so repurposing some of those parts uh, away from the roles that they played in the past and into new roles becomes a really uh, powerful way of shifting your own psyche. Uh, and again, not chastising them. I get, I get really worried and I see this a lot in pop culture where people like, refer to, you know, um, I saw one book, refer to it as like the asshole that lives in your head. Uh, I get really wary of that. I think when you refer to any part of yourself in that detrimental pejorative way, yeah. uh, it usually backfires. Leaning in with curiosity and having a conversation with them for me has been really helpful. Yeah, I agree. So something you've brought up multiple times now is dreams. You just said daydreaming, but at the beginning of this, you were saying you have very vivid dreams at night. And then you actually journal and reflect on them. This is this is this is pretty rare. I'm curious. Is there anything you uncovered through doing this practice? Oh, so many things. I I think 
the dreams are a really powerful source for me of creativity and imagination. And so some of the sentences that ended up in Awaken Your Genius came from dreams. Hmm. Like I would wake up in the middle of the night with a fully formed sentence um, from that came to me in the dream itself. Um, or sometimes dreams have symbols in them. And then it's sort of fun to think in the morning about like what that symbol could mean for where you are in life right now. Hmm. Um, and our subconscious in many ways communicates to us through our dreams. And so your dreams can send you really powerful signals for that reason. And I've also found that the more I pay attention to my dreams, the more I journal about them, the more powerful they get. Hmm. It's it's almost like someone, like there's somebody within me who's like, oh, like someone's actually paying attention to these. <laughs> let's like, let's dial up the volume and, um, and, and see what happens. Uh, and so like I mentioned the example of 0 0.8 times 0 0.2 equals 0 0.16. But there are sentences that ended up wholesale in the book that came to me in a dream. Are you able to go back to bed when when you wake up with something that vivid? Yeah, I am usually. I do need to write it down, though. Yeah. Otherwise, if I can't write it down, then like it will keep nagging me uh, because I don't want to forget it. And so I will have, speaking of post-it notes, I'll have post-it notes right next to my bed where I can like jot down a quick thought if I... If it's something that I don't want to forget in the morning. Yeah. Do you have any other practices that are just somewhat interesting? Maybe not, not everyone has them. Uh, yeah. Dreaming about or journaling about dreams is certainly one of them. I think the other one is putting myself on what I call putting myself on airplane mode. Um, <laughs> so disconnecting and just carving out time to think uh, is as it shouldn't be unusual, but it really is very unusual in this day and age where we're all moving from one email to the next, one meeting to the next, one notification to the next without any time to pause and reflect in between. And so, uh, and I, when I first started doing this because it was hard, I would put it on my calendar and I would call it airplay mode uh, for like 20 minutes a day. And I had to show up, I would treat it like a meeting. And, and that might take the form of me sitting down on a chair with nothing but a pen and a notepad and just like doing a thought dump of whatever is in my head. It might mean I go for a walk uh, and here's the important part, no audiobook, no phone call, nothing. It's just you and your thoughts. It's pretty incredible what happens when you do that, um, when you're just self-reflecting um, while you walk. Research shows that walking increases creativity. And there are so many examples of scientists like literally walking themselves into the right answer. Mm -hmm. They'll be stuck on a problem. They can't be, they can't figure out the solution. And then they will walk away from the problem and the answer will come as if by magic. Um, and th the science is pretty clear on this. Like when you allow yourself to daydream, when you allow yourself to walk without anything keeping you company, just your thoughts, it might seem like nothing is happening, but your subconscious is actually hard at work. Mm -hmm. It's consolidating memories. It's making new associations. It's marrying the new and the old to create new combinations. And that's how original ideas are born. And so carving off time to think is, I think, very subversive. Uh, and it's also, if you're interested in boosting your creativity, it's one of the most important things you can do. Hmm. Think, thinking about some of those other really important things, what about the most scarce resource we have? What is it? It's attention. It's something, you know, people think about time or money being their most scarce resource, but I think our most scarce resource is attention for the reasons that we already discussed. Uh, your attention is, it, it can't scale. 
you can pay attention to one thing at a time. Multitasking doesn't work. The research is also clear on this. You can really pay attention to only one thing at a time. And so, and by the way, economic forces have recognized the value of this scarce commodity and have turned into a, a resource. So like today's social media services, you hand your attention to them for free and they sell it for a fee uh, because it's really, really valuable. And your day-to-day -day reality, um, going back to like we talked about how do you change yourself, how do you transform, your day-to-day -day reality is determined by what you pay attention to. If you pay attention to junk, your life turns into junk. And that was the case for me, for sure. If you pay attention inward, if you pay attention to the signals that your mind and body are uh, sending to you, you'll become better at mining yourself for original insights. Hmm. If you devote, if you direct your attention to more valuable sources of information, um, then you your output will be enriched as a result of that. You know how they say in movies, like if someone has a gun, like, be careful where you point that thing. The same thing is true for your attention. Like, hmm. Be careful where you point that thing because what you point to will shape your reality. Yeah, you brought up a pretty startling statistic in the book, and it was around social media usage per day. And I'm pretty sure it was 160 minutes on average is what the average American spends on social media per day. And then you brought up the, the average word count, which I think is between like 200 and 260 words per minute. So if people took the time they spent on social media and redirected it to a book, which is an average of 90,000 words, they'd read between, it was like 118 to like 160 books a year, just reallocating that focus and attention. I think I was reading that. I was like, it's, it's pretty eye-opening. Uh, it's pretty yeah. remarkable. What what else are you doing to to put the blockers up or, or recapture that attention? Is it is it really around just being intentional about how you're going to to do your work or how you're going to focus that day? Um, being intentional is part of it for sure. And then some of the self reflection that we talked about also goes into this as well. So. Often, when I reach for my favorite sources of distraction, I'm looking for something. So there is an unmet desire underneath that impulse to reach for your smartphone. Uh, that unmet desire is often a need for novelty, often a need for excitement, often a need for adventure, like something different than what I'm doing. So mm -hmm. I reach for my phone. Um, and then here's the important bit. And you can try this out right now if you'd like. So pause this conversation if you're listening to this and go and spend 10 minutes looking at your favorite sources of distraction, like Instagram, Twitter, news, stock market, sports, whatever it might be. And then come back and check in with yourself. How are you feeling? Have you actually met the desire for adventure and excitement and fun? Or... Are you feeling this low-level buzz of stress, mm -hmm. which is usually what happens for me? So Twitter makes me neurotic. Instagram makes me feel less than. Facebook makes me feel like I'm reliving the worst parts of middle school. Um, so it's not because of discipline that I like learn to avoid those distractions for the most part. It's because I've checked in with myself now uh, sufficient amount of times that I know that not only will those will those sources of distraction not fulfill the unmet desire that I'm searching for, 
but they actually will leave me feeling worse mm. than what I started. They will leave me feeling more anxious uh, about myself than I started. And so when you know that, when you really realize that for yourself, it'll become easier to avoid those distractions. I'm skeptical, by the way, of all or nothing approaches. Like either you're on social media or you're completely off. I think that's just usually just not doable. Uh, and often when the diet ends, people tend to relapse. Hmm. And so um, I'm much more in favor of moderation. And for me, moderation becomes easier when I'm intentional about what I'm doing and when I know the effect that some favorite source of distraction is going to have on my psyche. Yeah, I, I really like that approach. Uh, I'm wondering for you, Ozan, what, what have been some of the most impactful resources you've come across over time? I'm asking because you, you're you're sitting in front of a, a very large bookshelf, but then also you bring up a wide range of quotes. You, you've got a ton of Rumi in, in the new book, uh, which I yeah. love. So I, I'm just wondering, what for you have just been really impactful resources you've gone to over the years? There's a number of them. I uh, I love exploring bookstores. And so one of the reasons why there's so many different stories and so many different principles from really varied uh, disciplines in the book is because I read really widely. And I read really widely by doing something we, that we talked about before, which is like following the breadcrumbs of curiosity. Um, and so I'll walk into a bookstore and I'll walk past the bestseller section and I'll just like go and look at the other shelves and see the older books that have fallen out of mainstream awareness. Or I'll like a, a, a book and a shelf will just draw my attention. I'll pick up the book and just open to a random page and start reading it. And if it draws my attention, if it piques my curiosity, then I'll actually buy and, and read the book. Hmm. But paying attention to, like we mentioned, for example, Bruce Springsteen's memoir, uh, Born to Run, which was a bestseller, um, but I read it not because I'm a musician, but I was just really interested in his creative process. Um, I read a number of books about screenplays uh, because I'm interested in storytelling. So I'm really curious about how different creatives approach their crafts. Uh, so there are stories in the book from film directors like you know Mike Nichols and Quentin Tarantino and, and others as well. And, or like I'll read business books, but again, not the business books that everybody else is reading, because when you're reading what everybody else is reading, you'll often be thinking what they're thinking as well. So there's so much value in looking where other people are not looking, hmm. which means walking past the shiny new popular sources of information to those gems, the undiscovered gems that are collecting dust on a bookshelf somewhere. And this is a proverbial bookshelf, not just the literal one in a book bookstore, but uh, ideas that have fallen out of mainstream awareness that no one is paying attention to because they're not new. Hmm. Uh, Ozan, your, your curiosity just exudes out of you. A few years ago when we had you on, I asked if you could do this long form conversation, just, just ask questions of anyone dead or alive, who would you love? You responded to a few people, but I'm wondering if I asked you that right now, who would you love to sit down with? Oh God, I actually don't even remember my response don't, don't, I'll, last time. I'll bring I'll bring them up afterwards. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um God, a number of people came up. I think Abraham Lincoln would be on that list for sure, just because uh his life story is incredible. He failed so many times. And I mean, he was the president of the country in a very, very, very difficult time period, and he had this incredible knack for bringing people together who didn't think alike. Um, he was just an incredible mind. 
um, an incredible person. And so I'd love to have a conversation with him, sit down with him and ask him questions. Um, who else? I'd love to talk to Quentin Tarantino, uh, one of my favorite film directors. You know, talk about reimagining the status quo in filmmaking. He like Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it totally upends the chronological structure that a movie normally proceeds in. Um, and and I'd love to get inside his mind, his brain, and um, and ask him questions about his creative process. Um, from the business world, the first person that popped to mind is Sarah Blakely. She's the founder of Spanx. Um, she went from selling fax machines door to door to becoming the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. And her mind is also incredible in a way that she doesn't, she never copied and pasted. Hmm. Uh, and when people asked her, you know, what was your business plan when you started Spanx? She says, I had none. You know, my goal was to just create the product, build awareness, sell it. That's it. Like those are the three things I did over and over again, not copying like, oh, here's the, the you know, the five steps that you need to follow in a business plan or you need another credentials credential to be able to get started on a daunting undertaking, like starting a, a business from scratch. Um, and I, I find her really inspiring. And I think that would be a, a really fun conversation to have. Um, and then I'll, I'll mention Neil Armstrong too, um, you know, for obvious reasons. I, I would have loved to learn more about the early days of the Apollo program, and uh, and yeah, have a conversation with him about about that. It's interesting. You you listed four people again last time. You listed four as well. The only repeat we've only got one repeat with Sarah Blakely, who I am a huge oh, fan amazing. of. Yeah, yeah we, we've had her husband Jesse Itzler on uh, a few years ago. But, but you also mentioned so you mentioned Sarah Blakely before. Albert Einstein, Carl Sagan, and Richard Feynman. Uh, so nice. yeah, I appreciate the, the diversity um, uh, of your curiosities and your interests. That's awesome. Ozan, the book, Awaken Your Genius. Where can the listeners stay connected? Where can they pick this up? Obviously, guys, it's linked up in the show notes below. And then Ozan does some incredible things. I was talking to him about this before the podcast is every single time he puts together an amazing research, resource, which is an incredible recap of the book, highlighting the key points. I was telling him, I wish every author did this because it is so valuable, so insightful. Um, so it'll be linked up. But Ozan, where can listeners stay connected with you? Uh, where can they find out more? Yeah, to get the book, you can head over to geniusbook.net. And if you buy the book, um, there is a, if you go to that, that link, there's a special bonus there for ordering the book. It's a free mini video course with 10 life-changing insights from the book that you can apply right away. Mm -hmm. And it's really short, so you can watch it in less than 30 minutes. Um, so you can get it, you can get it there. Um, and then if you'd like to keep in touch with me, I'm not active on social media for the reasons we, we talked about. <laughs> the best way to do that is to join my email list. I have one email that goes out every Thursday to over 45,000 people that shares one big idea that you can read in three minutes or less. The easiest way to sign up for that is text my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to the following number, 55444. Or if you want to jump on the web, you can go to my website, which is ozanvarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N-V as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com. As always, thanks for listening. And all of that will be linked up in the show notes below. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There?, 
I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.